Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Write or Die show. I'm your host, Randy Lee Boslaw. On the show, we interview other writers and we talk about mental health from their personal journeys. If you have not already hit that like and subscribe button, go ahead, do that now so that you never miss an episode. Welcome, everybody. Today with us, we have John. Hello. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for having us. So tell me a little bit about who John is. So my name is John Katz. I am an online coach based in New York City, treating folks around the world. I specialize in helping people come to terms with trauma they experience as young people, issues around anxiety, depression, negative self-talk, feelings of low self-worth, problems with their body. Overeating and being overweight is very common, but very solvable issues. Uh, I went through all of this and more, and I was able to heal myself through a daily process of personal development that strengthened me from the inside out. And I've gotten to the point now where I am abundant enough and skilled enough to help others. And I'm on this path of of healing and writing is a big part of that. Creative free expression is a big part of that for me. Excellent. So that's a little bit about who you are, but much more about what you do. So I'm going to dig a little deeper here. Who are you? So like you're a New Yorker. Yeah, I'm a native New Yorker. I'm an advocate for food rescue and holistic well-being. So what is food be- rescue? Sorry. Yeah. So New York City has a very big problem with food waste. New York City also has a very big problem with hunger. Over a million New Yorkers went hungry last year, while one third of all food grown in this country was thrown out. Oh, wow. Yeah. One of the things that I am and what I do, and the, the two are somewhat synonymous yeah it's like a, a double helix that kind of wrap around each other um is i rescue food I, I think that waste is i'm not sure if the religious concept of sin exists but if there was a if there is a secular concept of sin and maybe if there is a religious concept of sin that does exist in the world i believe that food rescue is a sin or food waste is a sinful act it's taken for granted in this country that we just eat whatever we want throw away whatever we want and the devil take the hindmost so uh i am someone that believes very strongly that waste is awful. And so I've dedicated a large part of my life to stopping waste, you know, getting wasted and wasting our time and wasting our energy and wasting our resources, but also wasting food. Um, It's a a big part of who I am. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's some company or there was that I heard about in Toronto, who was going to the grocery stores and the stuff that they were going to throw out because it had, it was about to go bad, but it wasn't bad yet. They would go and they would take it all and they would bring it to like the shelter or whatever i don't remember what they were called at the time because this is a few years ago i heard about it but i thought oh that's so cool yeah so what we did in the city was we set up a a tri-borough actually it was every borough but staten island was involved in food rescue under my organization and, and some other committed folks we set up a network just as you're describing to get food that was totally edible but was unsaleable for one reason or another oftentimes food is simply misdelivered so you work for grocery store a or grocery chain a you receive grocery chain b's pallet and because of insurance regulations the wholesaler can't pick it up because it was handled by the receivers and so in the system that we live under the laws would say well you have to throw it out but no so we rescue that stuff and hasn't even been touched it hasn't even been opened um and then obviously there's the things like you're describing the bread has a best by date of monday uh, but it has a sell by date of the preceding friday because folks need a couple days to eat it fresh so it gets thrown out well what about saturday and sunday fresh bread is going to be consumed so we rescued that that's that's so cool yeah that's definitely a a double edge what you do and, and who you are because that 
speaks volumes about who you are. A hundred percent. I mean, not to be too reductive, but I do believe that a person, at least in large part, is their habits. Yeah. You know, the, the, the way our what we do in our daily life really constructs who we are and then who we are uh, constructs kind of what what our habits are. When I was sick and extremely overweight, um, I had the habits of, you know, a very anxious and depressed person. Those were the things that I, I was doing. I was doing things that an overweight, anxious and depressed person did. And thus I became one or I was one. And when I changed my habits and I changed the way I ate, I changed the way I thought about myself. I changed the way I treated myself. Well, then I became a person that cared about themselves in a completely different manner. That's awesome. And we're going to talk about that right now. <laughs> so uh, start your story wherever it makes the most sense for you. Upper West Side of Manhattan, great place. Too many writers. You throw you throw a stick and you'll you'll hit at least five writers. It's a very literate part of the world. Based a lot of the Jewish diaspora before and after the war settled in New York City, and a lot of the folks made their way to the Upper West Side. A lot of these folks were involved in culture and arts in the old country or developed that skill set in this country. So it created a fertile cultural ground for me to grow up in. Uh, I was lucky enough to have some distant relatives that were very, very heavy into the arts. Uh, Good. They they acted sort of as surrogate grandparents when both of my biological sets of grandparents were uh, in Florida. Uh, uh, And they raised me in a cultural area. So I had a heavy cultural exposure um, from a young age. I learned to read if you believe my parents, somewhere between the ages of two and three, I believe I was writing wow. shortly. I was writing shortly thereafter, and books were always around. Uh, my folks had subscriptions to good magazines, uh, Newsweek to start, eventually the New Yorker, and I fell in love with the written word. I was, you know, there's lots of family lore about me staying up late reading and always, <laughs> al- always reading and stuff. And uh, books were provided a lot for me. They. Yeah, my family life wasn't super stable. There was definitely a lot of chaos in the home and uh, books and to a later later on to a, a lesser extent, cinema and music provided sort of a, a classic escape for me to to exit into. And then out of the house, I was exposed to a lot of museums and various cultural things by my immediate family and my surrogate grandparents that I, I mentioned. And this just gave me a lifelong love of the written letter and uh, went through the school system, went to college in New Orleans, and was sort of at a crossroads following that. I got into farming. I, I took a couple trips around the world doing local farming on small-scale uh, agriculture projects around the world, essentially trading That's my labor cool. for, for, yeah, it was great for room and board. And so I had this dual learning situation of uh, hands-on agricultural work and also travel, but I was definitely running for myself. You know, it was a lot of unresolved baggage back in the States. I mean, there's no one that's wandering around the world for years that isn't running from something or someone. And I was running from myself uh, in a very real way. A lot of people that are constantly on the move, they can't really be at ease, sit still with themselves. And I was too blind to see at the time, but I definitely was um, running for myself. And I think that's, sorry, not to interrupt, but I am. Please interrupt. (laughs) But I am. Um, I think that's what a lot of people do is they think, okay, if I move to wherever things will be better but you bring yourself with you so it's not going to work if what you're trying to get away from has something to do with baggage that you're holding on to 
Well, it's patently absurd. Wherever you go, there you are. You know, I, I've traveled less in the last two and a half years since I got healthy than I did in the 25 years before. And I've traveled more inwardly. You know, I got healthy in a 350 square foot one bedroom apartment on the fifth floor of an old tenement building on the Lower East Side. Not the place I'm in now. I own this place. But this is a really not great rental. And uh, that's where I decided my life was worth living. And that's where I learned more about myself than anywhere else. Barely leaving I would work out in my in my place. I prepared all my meals in my own place. I would do calisthenics on the sidewalk, nothing but me and a bunch of LES junkies, you know, heroin addicts getting high right in front of me. Um, and I learned more about myself. I traveled farther inward than I had when I was gallivanting around the South Pacific or backpacking through Europe. You know, you, you take it all with you. Whatever you have, mm -hmm. you take with you. If you're anxious, you're bringing that anxiety to the next time you see someone. If you're abundant, you're bringing that abundance to the next time you see someone. If you're scared, you're bringing that to New Zealand. And I definitely did. Yeah. My brother, um, when he was alive, he tried, he moved out West trying to, again, escape his circumstances um, and his, you know, the people that he knew and his addiction, but his addiction was a part of him. So when he went out there, it didn't really fix it the way that he, I guess, was hoping. He ended up coming back because, again, if you're just with yourself and you don't look inward, it, the same problems are going to start happening. There's no external solution for an internal problem. And I say that because for 20 years, I sought external solutions. I thought that if I could just sleep with this person that society says is attractive, then I would be granted some reprieve for myself and my feelings of low self-worth. So I attempted to engage with as many people that society would say is attractive as possible. If I just did these number of drugs, then I could have this temporary escape uh, from myself through these feelings. If I could just achieve this level of people telling me that I was good, um, then I would feel good. If I could just go to this place and be perceived as this individual that traveled, then maybe I would be able to escape myself. It's nonsense. It's not possible to escape a problem that you carry within. It, it isn't. And yeah. that problem that problem is there to stay unless you work on it, unless you work through it. And it took me being pushed to, to the brink. I mean, I was very, very close to departing this earth uh, to decide that I was going to deal with what was inside. I wasn't going to run for myself anymore. I was going to look in the mirror and openly acknowledge who I was, what I had done to become that person and the willingness to change. Good. So what kind of things kind of led you to finally make that decision? I know you're talking about your, your kind of not so good rental, tiny apartment, the people that were around your neighborhood, maybe not so good. Um, was there anything else that kind of pushed you to finally make that decision? I had a breakup in uh, kind of late summer, early fall 2020. And the relationship, I should not have been in the relationship for many reasons. And after it ended, like most weak-minded men, you know, I lashed out. I said, I went all in on me. You know, I'm going to do as much with as many people as possible. And a lot of vices hurt a lot of men in different ways, drinking, drugs, food, hooking up. And for me, it was the interpersonal relationships. My interactions with uh, women, short-term engagements were the most soul-destroying thing I did. I mean, the overeating didn't help. If you take a look at my before picture, you can see that dude had a lot of issues that <laughs> were were not solely around, you know, Bumble. The yeah. It happened to be that the Bumble situations, that hurt me the most. And 
I realize now being on this side that if you take from 10 people's cups, if you pour from 10 people's cups, your cup is not 10 times as full. It's 10 times as empty. You only get a full cup from giving. You don't get a full cup from take from pouring. And I was taking and I was taking and I was taking and I was taking and I was taking. For those who have never heard the cup analogy before, I love it. It is actually something that we did physically with my youngest. My youngest has autism. He's 16 now. But when he was, I think, maybe nine, maybe before that, I'm trying to remember which therapist told us. Anyway, so the therapist was trying to teach him that theory of when you give, you're filling your cup. When you are mean to someone or you're taking from them, you are emptying your cup. So I had actually bought these little baskets and little like pom-poms. And so anytime around the house that he was, um, you know, hey, you look nice today or hey, let me help you with that. He gets to put a little pom-pom in the cup. And if he was mean, you know, oh, whatever, he had to take, he had to do it, not us. He had to take it so he could physically see what was happening and once the cup got full you got to have a little prize because <laughs> I mean he's still a kid we gotta have prizes but that concept of filling and emptying your cup is so awesome like I love it I'm a visual person so that filling and emptying the cup is just so wonderful and not I had not heard it until then which I mean I guess is about eight years ago now but for those who had never heard it before is a really cool thing. If you want more info, obviously go Google it. But really, you fill your cup when you're doing good things for other people and you're doing good things for yourself. Because if you're self-harming, then you're also emptying your cup. hundred percent. You know, we're taught that the more we take and the more we get, the more valuable we are. But the person that takes the most is the most empty. I was and I hope everyone listening really, I, I can't describe it. Just take a look at my before picture. That person was morally spiritual. And where do we fit. find that def- de- that before picture? <laughs> That's on my IG page at, at right. NYC at NYC Foodways. But there you go. can look, you can, one can look, I can look. You know, I walk down the streets of New York City all day, every day. And I can see which person has given to themselves and the universe to the greatest extent they can or at least is heading in that direction, I can see which person has taken. It's very clear within 30 seconds of meeting you, I can see if you have sought to fill your cup from others or if you have sought to fill the cup of others with yourself. I was empty. I was hollow. I was a shell. I had taken and taken and taken, and I considered taking my life because I was so empty. I had taken so much from so many so frequently and felt so empty I, I didn't think it was worth being around. And until I started giving to others, which was only possible after I had given to myself, no, not taken for myself or taken from others to myself, but given to myself that I was finally able to begin to give to others. And that's when I began to become whole. And I began to start to have the inklings of beginning to figure this whole thing out because nobody has this whole thing figured out ever. You just, you're either trying to figure it out and then you expire from this plane of existence, or you are in denial, not trying to figure it out. And which is what everyone does. And then you expire from this plane of existence. We all end up the same way. Which the system will never tell you. They think, you know, with enough juvederm and plastic surgery, (laughs) with enough money and enough yachts, you will live forever. I mean, this is absurd. The pharaohs built pyramids and the pyramids are crumbling, but they did a pretty good job, but they're not alive. And they were planning, you know, they put that for the afterlife. Like Bezos's yacht is not going to bring him to heaven. You know, like these things aren't going to carry us forth. So 
my philosophy and the way I live my life now every day is we really must give our of ourselves to the universe. And one can only give to the universe as much as they've been able to give to themselves. So your ability to love others is uh, parallel to your ability to love yourself and your ability to love yourself is parallel to your ability to give of yourself. When I did not like myself or I could not love myself, when I looked in the mirror and did not like what I saw, how is it possible to love something you don't like? It isn't possible. Yeah. So once you hit that point where you're like, I'm either going to be gone or I'm going to do something, what was the first step that you took? I reached out to a coach. You know, results matter. In fact, results are pretty much the only thing that matters. If someone calls themselves a writer or an artist or anything, if someone calls themselves anything, and you say, okay, may I please have proof of you being this thing that you claim to be? Let's leave writing and art aside. If someone says that they are a construction worker, okay, can you tell me which building you've worked on? Well, uh, I'm, I haven't really done it yet. Okay, well, then you aren't that. So I was looking for someone that had been in an extreme state of negativity and was no longer in one anymore. And the person that I found is an online coach who had been in an extreme state of negativity and was no longer anymore. Better, he had coached others that were suicidal, overweight, drug using, anxious, depressed, and were no longer anymore. So not only did this person have results for himself, he had results for others. And to me, that's trust. I, I only really trust people that have real proven results if you're talking to me and this is why we like reviews i know that's a little like self-promotion there but like any author we like reviews on our books because it's proving that what we say we wrote is as good as we say it is just saying give us reviews when you read the books (laughs) keep going yeah no (laughs) no throw that in (laughs) <laughs> that was the first thing I did. I, I said, okay, my life is worth living. Let me find someone who thought his life wasn't worth living and and now is and who has found other guys there. Are, a good coach doesn't tell you what to see. A good coach shows you where to look. I needed someone to show me where to look because I was blind. I did not have eyes to see. My third eye was closed. My vision was blurred. I could only see what was directly in front of me. I was unable to perceive anything that I couldn't visualize. I was, you know, the, the idea of the eye of as a window to the soul is, is such an apt one. If you are using your eyes to see, you are not looking in the right place. It has to be a, a total perceptive vision. And this person had one for himself and others. And I signed up with this coaching program. I was given a specific uh, custom nutrient, uh, macronutrient plan, carbs, fats, and proteins and workouts. I had never worked out a day in my life. That's something I want to stress to everyone listening. <laughs> you're, you're hearing the the voice of a 37-year-old man who's in shape, who before he was 34 and a half had never worked out once And one of the most common excuses I get, because I do, you know, your vibe attracts your tribe. I do often hear from folks that are not maybe the most physically gifted as I was, who had no idea how to eat as I did, who have don't like going to the gym as I didn't. I loved saying this. I'm not a gym person. By the way, I work out every day and three to five times a week, I do a second workout. So like we talked about before, we are what we do. So when I wasn't a gym person, I didn't go to the gym. Now I'm simply a person that works out. You can label me as you wish. And so my coach hooked me up with- uh, I, uh, sorry, I'm going to interject. I like that wording because, so I did kickboxing for 10 years, national champion, world kickboxing. Oh yeah, the whole the whole nine yards. 
You, we got to meet next time you're in the city. We'll go to my, I, I train, I train uh, Muay Thai. I have for a couple months. Oh, on, that's yeah, what I was yeah. doing. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, right. I haven't done it in about a year because my back kind of went, um, but I'm working on it, trying to figure out what I can and can't do. But I'd go down to the gym down the street. Yeah, that direction. Um, and now when I go, I'm like, oh, there's so many people. And, and in my head, it's, oh, I'm not a gym person. Like, because that wasn't my space even before. Because the gym that I went to before, you know, the kickboxing is totally different than a gym with weights and, and all that stuff that I need to go to. And physio says, you know, do this, do that. Um, but that mindset, that change in how you talk to yourself, that is key. If you're saying, you know, you don't have to be a gym person, but I am now a person who works out. I've been going to Aquafit. Love it. So much fun. I've been doing Pilates now because I'm trying to find the things that my body is allowing me to do in hopes of one day still kicking someone in the face. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm, yeah, it comes down to being honest. Does one want to have good mental health? Well, if the answer to that is yes, then you better be doing something physical. I don't care if you're a gym person or not. Guess what? I'm still not a quote unquote gym person. I work out in my house every day. I work out in my house every day. I was up this morning, this morning at four, cause I'm up at four every day. I work out That's in my living room. I work out in my living room every day and I don't have to go to the gym. One doesn't have to go to the gym. People like prisoners, prisoners get ripped in their cell. Do you think they have some fancy military leg press and squat rack and rowing machine? Absolutely not. They have a willingness to keep their mental health where in the, when they're in the, in the belly of the beast. And what you said about the way we speak, the story we tell ourselves is the story of our lives. That's the story we write. And we write that story every day with our actions. And if, if we are telling ourselves the story that I was telling myself, which is a story of massive overeating, drug use, you're creating a main character with these massive issues, awful mental health. You're writing a, a story of a promiscuous individual, putting him or herself at a serious risk of a lot of life-threatening situations, um, economically depressed, physically depressed, emotionally depressed. This is the story we're writing. And we write the story in our heads. I had had and occasionally in my dark moments have some negative thoughts about my family. They're not nearly as frequent as they used to be. They used to run my, are we allowed to curse on here? A little bit. They used to run my shit. And there's no other way to say it. The, the, the resentments I had against my family were the dominant force of my life, full stop. Mm-hmm. And in being resentful against my family, it was impo- resentments are like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. They're the most absurd thing in the world. And so when you write yourself the story, it's always going to be this way. Why did they act this way? Why weren't they around? Well, then you're writing a main character that has all these massive mental issues. Well, they weren't around because they had horrible trauma. Why do you think they acted this way? Adults don't act like children unless they were hurt as kids. So maybe that's the viewpoint I should have had. And that's the viewpoint I have now. It's one of understanding. It's one of acceptance. It's it's. And now that I've accepted them, I can accept my life story because I write it and rewrite it every day. I'm, I'm constantly revising. I'm constantly adding new details. I'm caught. The character is constantly getting stronger and I love it. And that is the difference between the depressed person who is living in the past. And I'm pretty much only living. I'm here now with you. And this is one of essentially two times a day that I'm actually free of myself through energy exchange. And the other one is through working out. Otherwise, I'm just like trying to keep everything else at bay. Um, but this is this is the story that I'm writing of, of perseverance. I'm always living in the future. It's a constant future projection towards the person I intend on being, which is a person that isn't plagued with horrible. I mean, I used to I used to be, be in bed. Like I was that anxious. I could not take the covers off. I was that anxious. 
I gave myself awful like teeth grinding situations because I was so anxious mm. during my my sleep. It was all encompassing. And now I know exactly what I need to do to be okay with myself. And that's all I try to do every day. I really like that because it, it comes down to that change in mindset. And actually I had so much anger towards my mom for a long time. And I love my mom. Don't get me wrong. It wasn't like an anger like I hate you. It was an anger of you should have done xyz for me when i was younger had nothing to do with not loving her i absolutely adore my mom always have i've been a mama's girl but and i've said it before my stepfather was an alcoholic so when she made that decision to marry him you know i i held that against her for years literally till this year when i finally worked it through with my therapist i went huh oh she wasn't just like, you know, it'd be a great idea if I married this alcoholic and ruined everyone's life. That wasn't her intention. But that's how my teenage mind was seeing it. And because I was seeing it that way, my teenage brain stuck it all the way to my adult brain. And I lived with that for 20 years. When in reality, it was she married somebody she thought was good because he didn't, he, he hid um, his addiction right? As many do until it got to the point that it was out in the open. And then it was, what do I do as a mom, right? Because now I'm married to this person and I'm not going to get too far into it because it's not my episode, it's yours. But learning to look at things from a different viewpoint changed so much about how I forgave my mom now. And it wasn't that I ever, like, I've always talked to her, always adored her. She lived at my house even, but I still had that resentment and that anger towards her until earlier this year when I finally went, huh, I never thought of that. And I reframed it in my brain. Yeah. And and check this out. I'll take it a step further. Let's say she did do it to, to harm everyone. Let's say she did know how bad it was going to turn out. What does holding that against her do? Like, forgiveness is for the forgiver, not the forgiven. And that was- And I tell my kid that, but it's hard. That was- that was the, that's the toughest lesson to do because it requires us to take ourselves out of it mm -hmm. and then say, who am I forgiving them for? Like, do I want to be okay or do I want to be right and have them be not okay? I would rather just, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I should be angry with you. Maybe I should hold it against you, but I want to be okay. So mm -hmm. I'm going to let it go. And the reason... <laughs> It takes so much internal work to change your perspective on the manner in which you perceive other people acting to affect you. And most people die with their resentments intact. I, I think there's two ways of dying. I'm, I do reduce a lot of things to binaries. I know there are gray areas <laughs> for, for everything. But for me, resentments are, are relatively binary. You forgive them and release the resentments or you die holding on to it. And most people... The vast majority of people, well over 90% of people will die holding their resentments uh, mm -hmm. in, you know, their family member, namely their parent that wasn't there in the way they needed, even people that have died or broken up with them. I, I Part of my philosophy that, that I've come to realize, by the way, this is your episode because we're all in this together and we all have the same narrative because what I said about resentments is exactly what you dealt with. So how could we not be the same person? You know, we it's are, true. Uh, it's true. Yeah. And I think there are essentially four sources of pain for people and they all come from an absence. The first is a family member was killed uh, 
before their time, let's say. The second is a family member succumbed to some disease before the time their time. The third is a family member left, as in physically departed, uh, voluntarily, uh, called a breakup or maybe just abandoning. And then the fourth is the family member was present, but they were absent in the important emotional and spiritual way that people need. And one or more of these four things are what runs everyone's life. And it's what ran mine. I believe that my People were not around in the manner in which I needed them to be, and I held that against them forever. No one died. Uh, no one was in jail. No one succumbed to a disease, and nobody, you know, essentially absconded and left the family, abandoned us. But I did feel that that my people did not show up for me the way I needed them to, and that caused me a lot of pain. But holding on to that pain did nothing. And had I not changed my life around, I would have died either then in 2021 when I got healthy. Or in the natural course of things, I would have died with that pain intact. And I chose, you know, I have, I'm third in my mid thirties. I have probably, you know, 40 to 55, maybe 60 years left. Maybe the next two thirds of my life, I should live uh, pain free and regret free and resentment free. And that's what I've decided to do. I like that decision. It was a good decision. Um, so what has been your favorite? And I, I think I might know the answer, but I'm going to ask a question. What has been your favorite? coping strategy? Best coping strategy is to simply project towards the future. To deal with what negativity is in the present by gazing at your life as it stands is a fool's errand. The best coping strategy is to raise yourself out of your current position so you can accurately examine your problems as something below you. When you think of your problems as something above you or at eye level, they're going to destroy you. When you think of your problems as something below you as something petty, inconsequential because we're all gonna leave this earth at some point, that is gratitude, you see them accurately. And in order to enter a state of gratitude, you have to give yourself challenge and overcome it. You're grateful when you say, oh gosh, Let's say you're you're running late and the train is two minutes late as well. I'm grateful that this potential negative thing has not come to pass. So I feel grateful for a moment. I'm thankful for my existence. I'm thankful the train showed up on time. If you're in a negative state as I was and you're not doing anything to raise yourself in that out of that state into a state of gratitude through working out, through intentional nutrition, and through not using vices, then that's how you become grateful. When I wake up early, it is a clear sign to the universe that I'm grateful for my existence. If I was ungrateful, I would be taking taking as much sleep as possible. When I eat intentionally, I show the universe I'm grateful for my body. If I was just taking as much food as I wanted, then I would be showing ingratitude. When I choose to work out, I'm showing the universe I'm grateful for my mind and body by giving myself good mental and physical health. So the coping strategy is walk in alignment with your conscience. Do things that build you so when the problems enter your life, they, they don't destroy you. I like it. Um, And so now, where do people get what you've written? Tell so every day I write uh, a message to the world on my Instagram. It's a in-depth Instagram post, generally some coaching or cultural discussion. I've also written 75 YouTube episodes. Uh, the first 50 something were on food and culture. So discussions of New York City, places of note, discussions of books I adore, discussions of film I adore, um, a lot of philosophical musings, um, existence, a lot of ex it's kind of my personal, not kind of, it is my personal existential philosophy. Um, those are musings. So some personal musings as well. And then around the 50 something episode, I experienced uh, 
the greatest blessing of my life, second greatest blessing of my life after getting healthy. And the, the second greatest blessing of my life was my lost my home in a fire. There was a pretty catastrophic apartment fire that destroyed my home and everything in it. And uh, this was a great gift uh, because it made me extremely grateful for what I had, my life, my body, my soul, the only three things that matter. And after the fire hit, I started writing differently. I started writing a bit more harder edged. And so I wrote about 25 episodes more focused on personal development and uh, living every day to the max. Um, and those are all on my YouTube channel, also named NYC Foodways. Excellent. And we're going to stick the links, of course, down in the description below so people can easily watch them, listen to them, and go on the Instagram and read all of that um, information. So obviously that's where we also follow you, but is there any other places that we should be going to follow you? No, those are my main sources of uh, dissemination of my writing, my philosophical spirit. There's a fair bit of art. I'm extremely into art. I've had a lot of art commissioned. I'm heavy into music as well. There's some time-lapse digital art that I put together on, on my YouTube oh. channel and um, folks that are into that, you know, I view art and pain as two sides of the same coin. I view art as an externalization of pain, uh, which is a positive sense, which is why so many artists are in pain. It's the way that we're able to externalize things. And people that have artistic bent and keep it in is why they're so in pain. I never thought I was good enough to put my writing and my art out there. Now I know that I am great enough to put anything I, I have out there. And it's in expressing it that one finds greatness. Um, and, and, uh, it's crazy. I, I just want to bring up one, one thing if yeah. I may, before we wrap, I wasn't intending on, on finding this today, but I found a, a long video or a video interview from, uh, David Foster Wallace, uh, suicide, as we all know, um, from 2003, where he was discussing American culture and consumerism. And it brought me to tears. I just, I have, if we're on a, a writing show, I have to talk about it. He probably more than any other writer impacted me, uh, before uh, and after his suicide, because I read his his big book far before he killed himself. But I was I was watching a piece with him, and, and it brought me to tears. You can see how much pain he was in, and you could see that in his writing and just in that interview, he was able to externalize it. The message I want to get across to all the viewers and listeners is that if you are in pain, and it, there is a way to externalize that pain without hurting yourself you are honest with yourself and one other person about what you're going through, it will unlock all of your potential. Foster Wallace's potential was unlocked, but ultimately not to the extent that that we wanted it or we needed it because he ended up taking his life. And I was just, I was floored by by the manner in which he spoke about the, the meaninglessness of endless entertainment in American culture, the meaninglessness of our ability to constantly be chasing pleasure and, and finding this nihilistic, self-perpetuating drive towards hedonism that just ends it ends in the coffin for everyone so that's that's yeah. another bit of that's another heavy bit of, it should be heavy this is real this is real stuff i mean this is people play playing jokes you know you've been through it randy you've been through it you talk about it you yeah. know i i i didn't take it there but i like people need to understand this is not a joke. I used to have all these jokes. I was the dude at the club. I was the man making jokes on a quarter ounce of mushrooms, high as a kite on Coke, half a bottle of gin in the system, trying to do whatever I needed to, to feel good in the moment. That's a funny game. Then you wake up in the morning, the worst anxiety in the world, wondering why you were put in this body, this fat body that you hate yourself. I know how serious this is. This is serious business. Oh yeah, it is. It, And that is why it's so important that we talk about it because, and 
actually the person that I just finished recording with before you, we talked about this a little bit. When we don't talk about it, we're essentially telling the next generation, don't talk about it. And then we just continue that cycle. Yeah, well, the cycle ends with me and you. It, it ends with this episode and all the other good stuff you're doing. It ends with all the stuff that we're both doing. And then our life ends and you and I will be able to rest knowing that following our trauma, we did every single thing we could every day in order to ameliorate the trauma of others. I don't know what what other responsibility there is for a grown human. And that's why I'm super happy to be here. And I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. And I like, I like that, that we have done everything that we can to help the next people in the future. And the nice thing about the internet is now this is out there forever. <laughs> So um, any last words to share? You're not alone. We are all in this together. Your pain is mine. No one suffers alone and no one survives alone. I'm here for you. I needed someone to be there for me when I was not there for myself. And I can play that role for you as well. Excellent. Thank you so much for sharing. My pleasure. As always, thank you so much for the amazing guests that we have on the show. Um, be sure to check out their links down in the description below. If you want to support the channel, go ahead and check out our merch store. We've got some very cool things on there. That's my favorite. Sorry, I'm busy ending the stigma. Um, but there's some other very cool designs. 10% of the proceeds always goes back to the Canadian Mental Health Association. Be sure to follow us on Facebook at RB Media because we have some great new shows coming up and you never want to miss any of those episodes. And remember, the only way to end the stigma of mental health is to speak openly and honestly. Bye!